It's another great day to talk about what happens inside the boardroom. Welcome to Board Vision, the official podcast of the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors. On this show, we share perspectives from leading corporate directors, discuss what makes boards effective, how they can help companies face challenges today and become future ready. What defines success as a corporate board member? Linda Fane Levinson, the 2022 NACD Directorship 100B Kenneth West Lifetime Achievement Award honoree, former chair of Hertz Global Holdings, former independent lead director of Jacobs and the NCR Corporation, and a former board member of Western Union Company, shares her story. Join our host for this episode, Elena Loveland, editor-in-chief of Directorship Magazine, and learn from Fane Levinson's career, fighting for her seat at the table at a time when women were not usually in the boardroom, using her positions of power to elevate women and other underrepresented people, giving back to the communities she serves, and her thoughts on pandemic-era changes in the boardroom. But first, here's a word from our partner. Want to dive deeper into the boardroom hot topics referenced in NACD's annual report? Register today for Deloitte's Board Governance Webinars, hosted by Deloitte's Center for Board Effectiveness. This quarterly series provides board members and executives from across industries and geographies with the opportunity to connect and hear insights on topics prevalent on many board agendas today. Learn more and register at Deloitte.com US slash board webinars. Well, thank you, Linda, for joining us on our podcast episode today. And I'm just going to dive right in. How did you feel when you learned that you received NACD's Lifetime Achievement Award? Good morning, Elena. I was thrilled. I was absolutely surprised. Boards are sort of interesting. Each one is its own community. And so it never occurred to me that I would be nominated for that. It was great. (laughs) When you look back on your career, what do you think are the proudest accomplishments you've had that you think helped you get to this pinnacle of success? I think the proudest thing is that I, in a time when women were not in the boardroom, were not in corporations, were not anywhere, access was really difficult, that I just prevailed through all of the different career choices I made. I was always, until probably 10 or 15 years ago, the only woman in the room. And I guess my proudest achievement was joining McKinsey in the very first class of women that were hired at McKinsey in the New York office and being the only one of that class that was elected a partner and becoming the first woman made a partner at McKinsey. That was clearly an inflection point. Being a woman earlier in your career and when there wasn't a lot of women at all, what made you want to pursue a career in a male-dominated field? What was the impetus for that? Well, if you think about it, First of all, all fields were male dominated. Um, but I, I have my first two degrees are a bachelor's and a master's in Russian literature and Russian studies. So I certainly wasn't thinking about business. I was on my way to getting a PhD 
Somewhere along the line, it occurred to me that really I didn't know why I was doing that. I was brought up to be a highly educated woman. And I went to Barnard where we were told to be highly educated women. And careers were not something that anyone talked about. So as opposed to the young women today, I didn't have my five-year plan or my 10-year plan I just sort of made my way. And as I started taking jobs, I realized, well, my first job I solved for speaking Russian, which was obviously the wrong objective function. And so I ended up in the travel industry, which is not a very profitable industry. It's it's sort of glamorous. I traveled a lot, but it's not really that interesting. I had various jobs and I, with my very fancy Barnard and Harvard degrees, the men around me were getting promoted and I was not. And I thought this is truly ridiculous. So I quit a job. I went off to Africa with a friend of mine for two weeks and stayed for three months. And during that time, I said, I'm going to get an MBA because this is ridiculous. I I really thought of it as this is the union card. I need to have this degree at the end of my name. So I went and got an MBA and then decided I wanted to work at McKinsey. Again, this is all about women and in a man's world. While I was getting my master's in Russian at Harvard, my roommates were in a program called the Harvard Radcliffe Program in Business Administration for Women. Because in 1963, Harvard Business School did not accept women. And so they had a separate and not quite equal business degree on the other side of the Charles River. One of those women went to McKinsey at the end of that first year, but McKinsey was not hiring associates. She just went as an analyst. And so that had given me the idea of that was an interesting place to work. It also, I had experienced how very clearly the men and the women were getting the first semester education that was identical, but the men were going on to get degrees and the women were going to an internship and then to essentially a secondary role. So fast forward, I got my MBA. I told one of the deans at NYU where I was getting it that I wanted to go work at McKinsey. He introduced me to a partner and the rest is sort of history. Now, the interesting thing, which I always tell women because they're so busy planning things precisely, it's really serendipity because I knew the travel industry because McKinsey had a client for which that was a very important industry. I ended up being staffed on this very important client in my very first engagement with a very important partner. And you just have to put one step 
in front of the other and do really good work and then take the opportunities when they come. I think it's fascinating that you recognized you wanted to do exactly what everybody else was doing and, and you found a way to, to get in the door. Going back to the beginning of becoming a director, how did you find your first board seat? Again, serendipity. I was doing venture capital at the time and I got a call asking me to interview for the board of Genentech. They had heard about me from a former McKinsey partner of mine, and he had recommended me. So I had some startup board experience, but I'd never been on a public company board, and I had no biotech industry experience. But I got a call from the then chair. We went and talked. We hit it off, and I became a director of a very prominent biotech company that was public, that still had private equity owners as well. And in fact, it was a board where I learned enormous amounts. Tom Perkins of Kleiner Perkins, who had funded it originally, was still on the board. And so I got to see what an owner director, even though he was no longer the sole owner or kind of Perkins wasn't how they approach being on a board. And it's very different than being an executive in a company. Were there any early experiences on boards that you served on early on in your career, like specific challenges that you saw on a board that helped you in later board positions? Yes, actually several. At Genentech, we had a conflict of interest situation where we had to terminate a CEO, where we got sued, and where Wachtell Lipton were our attorneys and where I first was introduced to executive sessions on a board long before boards were doing that. So learning when a board steps up and how they do it was quite extraordinary. In terms of learning the industry, I just made sure I sat myself next to the board member who happened to be the chair of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Mass General, and he was my content mentor. And one of the things I learned at McKinsey is there is no such thing as a stupid question. And I would whisper to him, John, what does that mean? So that I quickly educated myself in what I needed to know. Obviously, I didn't need to know how to create molecules. I needed to understand the business, which as a former McKinsey partner, I knew how to figure that out. The other thing that actually was very interesting in these days of DEI When I joined the Genentech board, there were almost no women scientists there and virtually no women executives other than the one woman who ran the the IT systems. And I kept being told, 
well, you don't understand. There aren't women molecular biologists. There aren't women postdocs. There aren't women who can sell drugs. And when we terminated that CEO and promoted someone, Art Levinson, who was then the head of R&D, all of a sudden these women and people of color somehow emerged fully formed with postdocs and experience and the entire senior management changed over about a year. And I always use that as an example because if you look in the right places, you find amazing people. And he did. (laughs) So that was another lesson that I learned. And I also learned from Tom Perkins how to really think about those decisions that whether they be an investment or a people decision, how to really think about bet your business decisions and how to formulate a response. So it was extraordinarily valuable for me going forward. I want to go back to, we were talking before about you were in a position where you had to you know, get rid of a CEO. Well, I'm sure you've also been in positions where you were on a board that needed to hire a CEO. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for other board members when there's a CEO succession plan or plans to hire a, a new CEO, what are the most important parts of that process that other directors should know about as they're going through that process on their boards? So I have been on multiple search committees or led search committees to find CEOs. I think the most important thing is to really broaden your view of where that CEO can come from. Every company thinks that their company is unique and there are almost no people who are going to be able to run it. And in fact, that's why they frequently wait too long to change CEOs. So really thinking about what a new CEO has to be able to do, whether you're looking for someone who's going to change the culture, who will be a change agent or Will sometimes you're bringing in someone who needs to develop the next several layers of people, but really thinking about not in generic terms, but in very specific terms, what are the value drivers of that company and what other industries deal with those same value drivers, perhaps in a different industry? And Getting someone who knows something about your industry but isn't the expert is sometimes imperative to get someone who will be a change agent instead of doing what he or she has always done. So that's one. The second is interviews are useful, but if you think about it, most CEOs are very good salespeople and they hopefully have good people skills. And so I am very much a trust and verify kind of person. And one of the things I made it a point to do personally was check references myself, even if the search firm had checked references. I talked to people 
who worked for, worked with, and for whom that person worked. And also try and find those people that you haven't been told to talk to. It's really important. And then the third thing is even though the search committee narrows the pool down, having all directors ultimately interview the last few candidates is imperative because everyone comes at it from a different point of view. Those are some great pieces of wisdom to find the best candidate for that company. I want to go back to a little bit about mentorship because you talked about having a serendipitous moment where you were sitting next to someone who became a mentor for you. How important is it for new directors to find a mentor to guide them through the decisions they'll be making in the boardroom? And how do you recommend they seek those out if they don't have a serendipitous moment? I said this at the Lifetime Achievement Award dinner. I think it's really important that board members get to know their fellow board members, whether they become mentors or not. They are people and a board is not cohesive unless you really know the people in the room that you're working with. So I just In all boards, I just asked questions of my fellow board members based on what I thought their skills were or what I could learn and tried to build relationships with them. And so I'm not even sure in that instance I call those people mentors as much as colleagues and friends who I consult with, and sometimes they consult with me. And I think that is really the way you become a useful and functioning, value-adding member of a board. Because if you build those relationships, then when you all are discussing a very difficult problem, If you know each other, if you sort of understand where they're coming from, and if you trust them, you're more likely to have the kind of robust conversations where you get to a better answer because you don't feel like you always have to agree or be careful in the thick of a crisis or a tough decision. Everyone can be very forthright and open and I think that's what has to happen in boards. Excellent. I wanted to go to talking a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic in the boardroom. How did functioning as a board change in your experience during that period? And were there any meaningful surprises in a good way of how boards can get things done and corporations can get things done? Well, clearly we all went to Zoom, right? (laughs) And so... That took some getting used to, but a crisis focuses the mind. The board meetings were quite effective. They become more transactional. A fixed amount of time, you focus on the things that are most important. All the other things that happen at an in-person board meeting, informal conversations, getting to meet people didn't happen. On the other hand, the very positive thing, we ended up seeing more 
members of management several layers down because it was so easy to have people on Zoom. So you don't get to know them in the same way, but a lot of third and fourth level executives got to present to a board where they probably would not have been flown in from Europe or Singapore or wherever to present to the board. So there were a number of positive things. What was great though, it is actually quite efficient to convene people on Zoom. And during COVID, we had more meetings than we certainly at the beginning than we would have had normally. And it was a very efficient way to get a group of people together to focus on a specific issue and make a decision, whether it was about cash or people or how to proceed. Questions that were not the day-to-day questions, but when the markets shut down or when the markets explode, because that both of those things happen depending on what industry you're in. How do you handle it? Well, now that we're coming out of the pandemic now, I mean, it still exists, but it's not in the same crisis mode as it was before. What do you think is the top issue that are facing boards right now? Well, I think right now the volatility in the financial markets is clearly a top issue because it's always hard to plan and forecast. But when we have the kind of roller coaster that we've been seeing, so some companies who were doing brilliantly during COVID have found that people are going back to in-person things Um, Because of the volatility, companies that are dependent on big capital spending investment decisions, companies are not making decisions as quickly. Conservatism is creeping in and crises are places where a company that really handles it well, can actually do very, very well. But I think every company that I see is now trying to figure out which way is this going? And I don't think any of us know. Well, I want to take a brief look backward and compare to today. I can imagine that the way corporations look and boardrooms look with more diversity now than it was when you began your career, when there really wasn't much diversity at all. Are you surprised? Are you encouraged? How do you feel about promoting more diversity now in corporations and in the boardroom? And why is that important? I think it's really important because women are, in general, as smart as men. Specific women and specific men are smarter than others. But if you just assume 50-50 for argument's sake, It is silly to leave one part of the population out of the equation. Clearly, for people of color, the access and the uh, ability to be promoted has been much slower. And the drop-off as you get higher up in the corporation is really frightening. So I think we have to go through this transition because Everyone brings a different skill. And if you can have a diverse group of people of age, gender, color, experience, et cetera, you do get a better answer to lots of things. 
It's just morally right and it actually works. I think going through the transition is really difficult. Um, it's sort of interesting when, when I was at McKinsey, another colleague and I were asked to go and speak to the students, the executive program at the Harvard Business School. And it was clearly in the very early days of diversity. This is in the early seventies. And what we found is these men who were senior executives who were at six or 12 week program asked us, they said, we always knew the rules and now the rules are changing. We don't know the rules. So some of the funniest questions, one man said, if I hold the door for a woman, she gets mad at me. If I don't hold the door for another woman, she gets mad at me. If I light a cigarette, if I pull out a chair, I mean, these were all the common courtesy things. So think about today, you have casual dress for men and women. It's hilarious what one sees in, in a corporation or a boardroom. You have the Me Too movement, you have some people who are unbelievably sensitive to even the slightest comment. You have others who say, oh, come on, have a sense of humor. So the uncertainty in the environment in terms of what are the rules, I look at corporate codes of conduct, you need to be respectful. Everyone defines that in a different way. And the other thing is because of this transition, because it was so skewed, it is hard for young white men who see if you want to make a change, you have to disp disproportionately promote women or people of color. And that's really hard. I hear that now, you know, of parents of kids who are applying to college. So transitional periods are a little treacherous, but I think in the end, we have to get there. We just have to absolutely deal with merit along the way. And I think it will be a very uncomfortable transition, probably for the next 15 or 20 years. Do you have any final words of wisdom for newer generation executives and already directors or aspiring directors who can look at board service as a way to give back? Any words of wisdom for them how to do that, how to look at it that way? I think as in all things, work very hard and have a sense of humor <laughs> um, is my advice in doing this. I know that Giving back is something that people think of when they think about board service. I'm not sure that's really the right way to think about it. Board service done well is a huge amount of work, and it is, in a sense, a job because you're making really critical decisions. It's very different than an executive job because you're thinking of it from the shareholder's point of view and you really have to, were you the CEO, you understand this. Were you in the C-suite, you may understand parts of it, but not necessarily all of it. So I, I think it's the question people should ask is why am I doing it? And am I willing to put in the time and the work 
to do it. Too many people think of it as sort of another notch on their belt or something that would fill time. It should be thought of as what do I have to do to be really good at this and am I willing to do that? I love that answer. That's that's a great answer. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. And we are so glad that you are part of the NACD community. And thank you for being here. And congratulations again for receiving our Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Elena. That concludes this episode of Board Vision. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and join us next time. Until then, visit nacdonline.org to stay informed about the latest resources NACD has to offer, such as memberships, certification, national or chapter events, and our content, including reports, articles, and directorship magazine. That's nacdonline.org. Thank you for listening.